This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Denim had been around for a few decades in the United States when a tailor from Nevada named Jacob Davis decided to support the stitches on a pair of pants with copper rivets. He soon went into business with Levi Strauss, and the rest, as they say, is history. And in fact, blue jeans are now widely regarded to be the most widely worn garment on the planet. Blue jeans are iconic. They're the subject of songs and art. They are work clothes, and they're also high fashion. Put simply, we love our blue jeans. But that's one of the reasons why a new study in environmental science and technology letters is sort of hard to take. Because in it, researchers from the University of Toronto reported finding lots of fibers from blue jeans in the Arctic Ocean, suggesting these fibers got there through atmospheric and oceanic processes. And that's not great news for the environment, because even though denim is made from cotton, it's not cotton. It's a modified cellulose with lots of chemical additives. Sam Athey was the lead author on this report, and she's joining us from her home in Toronto, where she researches plastic marine debris as a vector for toxic compounds in marine and freshwater environments. Sam Athey, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Sam, before we get into this specific study about blue jeans, I want to put this into context. This is part of a larger problem involving microfibers. So so let's start there. What are microfibers? Yeah, that's a great question. So microfibers, they're pretty easy to visualize. Uh, Most of us do our laundry using electronic dryers. And every time we dry our clothes or run a load of laundry, we clean out the lint trap in our dryers. And lint is mostly composed of these small fibers that shed from our clothing. Um, And those are microfibers. And there are three types of microfibers. There's synthetics, semi-synthetics, naturals. Can you give a quick synopsis of each of these? Yeah, so microfibers can be categorized depending on the materials that they're made from. So some microfibers are made of plastic materials, and we call these synthetics. Um, Some of them are made of natural materials, things like cotton or wool, and those are called natural fibers. And then sometimes you can find... Uh, microfibers that are derived from natural materials like cotton, but are produced in a method that is more similar to plastic fibers. And these are called semi-synthetic fibers. These include things like rayon. Okay. And what category do blue jean fibers fall into? So blue jean fibers are natural fibers. um, And although that might sound great, anthropogenic natural fibers are modified during production using chemicals like synthetic dyes. And in the case of denim, it's indigo dye. And you can also have different other types of chemical additives incorporated during production, things like flame retardants or antimicrobial chemicals, which give clothing the properties that we like our clothing to have, durability, stain resistance, water resistance, and so forth. So these are like little boats upon which tiny chemicals can be transported all across the environment. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it, actually. How does this happen? Like, if we're using that boat analogy, how does the little fiber move its way from our washer and our dryer to the ocean? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the questions that we had when we were starting out on this study. We were looking at specifically microfibers that are released from clothing when we wash our clothes, so in washing machines. 
And what we found was that once the wash water from your washing machine is discharged into what's called gray water, it heads to wastewater treatment plants where the water is treated before being discharged to the environment. So in this treatment process, certain things are removed. So like larger contaminants, um, in some cases, smaller contaminants, but in a lot of cases, the microfibers aren't completely captured by the wastewater treatment plants. And so some of them are discharged um, in final effluent to the aquatic environment. Well, in these wastewater treatment plants, they're actually not designed for this. They're designed for a lot of other stuff, but not specifically to capture these fibers. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And what's interesting is that wastewater treatment plants, uh, depending on the types of treatments that they employ within a given plant, are actually pretty good at trapping things like microfibers and microplastics. They can trap anywhere from 83 to 99%, again, depending on the treatment that they employ in the plant. But um, even with 99% retention of these fibers, you're still having thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of fibers being discharged, depending on the amount of effluent that's being discharged from the plant every day. So it's still a significant number that's making its way through, even with a high proportion of fibers being retained. But the additional fact here is that those fibers that are retained, so say 99% of fibers are retained in a wastewater treatment plant, most of them end up becoming incorporated into the biosolids, which are then often incorporated or applied to agricultural fields. So studies have found that these fibers, once applied to agricultural fields, can enter local waterways through runoff from these fields. We capture these things, but then we release them anyway. Yeah, so a lot of them can be captured, but um, in many cases it offers an alternative pathway to the environment. That's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so you you went looking for this stuff in the environment, and you looked a long way from human development. Where, where did you go to try to find these fibers? The furthest sites that we looked at were actually in the Canadian Arctic. So we looked at 14 sites across the Canadian Arctic archipelago, and those were the most remote sites. And then we also looked at sites that were closer to sources, so closer to urban areas like Toronto. Uh, so we looked at sites in the Great Lakes, some lakes around Toronto, as well as wastewater that is discharged in Toronto. And when you looked at these sites in the Arctic, you found these fibers and not in small quantities, right? Like these things had made it all the way up to these really, really remote areas of our world. Yeah, I think that was one of the most surprising things is the, the highest number of these anthropogenic microfibers were found in our Arctic sites versus the more urban sites around Toronto. And that really does speak to the relative persistence of these fibers to undergo long-range transport, which means they're traveling via oceanic currents or atmospheric currents, and they're making their way from urban areas to remote areas hundreds of thousands of miles away. And they're then being incorporated into deep sea sediment. It takes quite a long time to get down there where they're accumulating in these remote environments. When you go out and you look for these, I mean, what does that look like? Do you, I mean, you drop a can and, and dredge at the bottom <laughs> of the ocean or like, how does that work specifically? <laughs> 
Well, that's actually not too far off. <laughs> so we are lucky enough to work with the CGCS Amundsen, um, which is a Canadian Coast Guard ship. In the summer, we're up visiting these sites across the Arctic, and we deploy what's called a box core. So it almost looks like a can. It's just square-shaped instead of cylindrical. And we drop that down to the bottom of the ocean, and it scoops up a bit of sediment, and then we bring it back up to the ship, and we store that sediment and take it back to the lab where we look for these fibers. So as someone who's environmentally minded, you really don't want to find these things. As a scientist, though, you are finding these things. It's got to be a little bit deflating when you do the analysis and you see how much of these fibers are there. I think it is a little bit deflating when you really think about it like that, because what we're seeing is how far-reaching the impact of something so personal as our blue jeans, which I don't know about you, but they're one of my favorite garments to wear. So it's very personal and um, and it is quite deflating to find such high numbers in an environment that, you know, you grew up learning about how pristine it is. And ultimately it's this sink for environmental contaminants, including those that are released, you know, when you do laundry every week. So, but I think it also... It also helps us acknowledge that and realize we do have this impact and there are things that we can do. And it helps encourage you to implement small changes to help mitigate this type of pollution from entering these pristine spaces. And I imagine you don't just find microfibers. What else, when you're looking at the sediment, what else do you find? We actually, in terms of the different types of anthropogenic particles, we do see different types of microplastics. They might be microplastic films from like like food packaging films, um, small pieces of that. We might find microplastic fragments. Uh, we've seen bits of rubber from, from tires, but majority of what we find are these fibers derived from textiles. So you said the majority of it is these fibers. Well, before I, I was introduced to your study, if you had asked me what we would find up in that sediment, I think I would have said, oh, man, you're going to find so much plastic, right? You're just going to find so much plastic. So even if like if I can't visualize how much so much plastic is in relationship, say, to the plastic that you find, what does the fiber content look like? Fibers make up about uh, anywhere from, you know, 90 to 100 percent of the anthropogenic particles that we're finding down there. And uh, some of these fibers are plastic fibers, but a majority of these fibers are these anthropogenically modified cellulose fibers, things like cotton or linen or hemp or wool, things that are naturally derived but modified using chemicals. And what? how do you know what percent of these fibers come specifically from blue jeans? Because this is really interesting. I mean, just finding the fibers is enough to make you gasp. But then you were able to fairly accurately, it seems, say this fiber is from blue jeans, this fiber is from something else. How, how do you do that? A lot of the fibers we find down there, it's quite hard to determine a source because, for example, you might have a black polyester fleece jacket or black polyester leggings, and those fibers will look the same. So you don't know if it came from the fleece jacket or the leggings. 
But in the case of these denim fibers, these fibers are composed of cotton dyed with a synthetic indigo dye, and that's pretty characteristic of denim garments. And we know this, but in order to help show this, what we did was we conducted a series of controlled washing experiments in the lab where we washed denim blue jeans and we looked at the fibers that were coming off of those blue jeans and comparing them in their chemical composition and their shape to what we were finding in the environment. And we found that they matched. So that was collectively this evidence suggested that these fibers are coming from blue jeans and we can be pretty confident in that. So I wanted to ask you too, like when you take this sludge, right? Like, do you put it under a microscope and start picking out the fibers with tweezers? Is there some like more complicated process than that for pulling them out and starting to separate them so that you can do these analyses? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit more complicated just because as you can imagine, you have a lot of organic material. It's like taking a, a handful of mud and trying to sift for particles that you can barely see with your eye. So what we do is we use a method called density separation, and we essentially try to separate the sediment grains from the other types of particles, whether it's natural particles or these anthropogenic particles. Um, And then what we do is exactly as you said, we take what's removed out of the sediments and we sort through them using a microscope. And we're trained to be able to identify microfibers, microplastics, um, and this. And then to be sure that what we've pooled are particles that are in fact microplastics, microfibers, and anthropogenic in origin, we then use a technique called Raman spectroscopy, which looks at the chemical composition of the particle. And so that's a confirmation that what we're looking at is indeed anthropogenic versus something that's organic and naturally found in that environment. Part of that process, the the part where you're talking about you're like trained to identify this, this sounds it sounds a little tedious. Like you got to have some really good like podcasts or music to listen to while you're doing this, right? Absolutely. I spend hours doing this in the lab. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is Science Friday. <laughs> and I'll just listen to that. And um, I love the podcast, last podcast on the left. So I just like listen to these for hours, just like looking under this microscope. <laughs> You know, we used to broadcast this program on Friday afternoons, and we we said if you wanted more science in your Friday, <laughs> and we were always afraid we were going to get a cease and desist letter from from Science Friday. But Iris <laughs> been cool about it, I guess. Nice. So let's back up for a moment here. How how did this become an interest for you? How did this become a passion for you? Because it's sort of an esoteric research endeavor. I don't think there's a lot of people who like are thinking about this, you know, early in their undergraduate years, or even for that matter, like later in their graduate studies years, like, ooh, I want to study microfibers. But something must have triggered this explosion of interest for you. I grew up in Southwest Florida, um, right on the coast, and I've lived on the coast for my entire life. And so I really appreciate coastal ecosystems and learning about them. And in high school, I learned about the BP oil spill that occurred in 2010 off the coast of Florida. And through that and learning about what was happening and how they were addressing the issue, I kind of gained this uh, like fascination for human impacts on the ocean. And um, not only, you know, how do we impact these 
ecosystems, but also what can we do to negate negative impacts on the ocean? And so in my research as an undergraduate and a master's student at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, I was able to pursue these interests in looking at the impacts of plastics, something that's personal that everyone uses and everyone through that use potentially impacts these ecosystems. So I was able to investigate the impacts of these uh, microplastics on marine and estuarine organisms. And then through that research, I learned that most of the plastic that we were finding was fibers from textiles. And even then, most of those textile fibers were not plastic. And so by focusing on plastic fibers and making that the enemy of the ocean, we're missing a big piece of the puzzle. And so through my PhD research, I am working on studying the impacts of the plastic fibers as well as the non-plastic fibers and helping to communicate the full picture in terms of where do these fibers come from? It's not just your polyester fleece. It's also your denim, really any of your clothes. And then also what we can do about it. So looking at different technologies that can be used to divert microfiber release to aquatic environments, such as filters on washing machines and dryers. So tell me, you talked about looking at the impacts of plastics and, and coming to understand the impacts of plastics and having this turn your attention toward microfibers. This study gives us a really good idea of how far spread microfibers have become in our oceanic environments. Talk about what the impacts are. As we spoke earlier, we know these are little vessels, carriers for chemicals, but you know, like there's different kinds of chemicals out there. There's some really, really bad ones and there's some maybe not quite so bad ones. You know, what is the impact of these microfibers and the chemicals they carry on these environments? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's a question that I get a lot and a question that I have myself. <laughs> and I, I, at this point, I really can't answer that because the research on this topic and these fibers in general is so new. And right now we're at the stage where we're finding these fibers everywhere. We're documenting, you know, how abundant they are, where they accumulate. Are they being ingested by biota? Yes, yes, yes. And now the next kind of stage in this research field is looking at the impacts of fibers and their associated chemical contaminants on different types of ecosystems and organisms. So um, this is kind of outside the territory of my dissertation research, but uh, my co-author and colleague on the paper is uh, Lisa Ertle. She's also a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, and she's looking into the impacts of these fibers, whether they're synthetic or natural, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, fibers on fish in the Great Lakes. You mentioned the BP oil spill that's one of those things where like when something like that happens, we can see it. The effects are immediate. They're unquestionably big, but they're really easy to visualize, right? They're really easy mm -hmm. to immediately care about. These microfibers are sort of like the proverbial boiling frog, right? They happen and accumulate slowly over time. There's not this one big catastrophic event. So how do you get people to care about this? I think what's so striking, especially what this study shows us, is that 
we're finding them everywhere. They're widespread. We're finding them in quite high numbers. And the microfibers that we're finding, we can see how they resemble our wardrobe, like our blue jeans, our polyester fleece, our yoga pants, you know. And I think that makes it really personal and easier to visualize than, say, pollution of PCBs or DDT. We're all connected with this problem because we all wear clothes, we all do laundry, and so we all need to take responsibility for this type of pollution because it's coming from our closets. So (laughs) I think that's how at least I encourage people to look at it, to care about it. Once people do understand it, once they want to do something about it, what's the solution? Because, I mean, we're not quite to the point in our sociological development where we're going to shun clothes, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I get asked all the time, should I stop wearing denim? And my answer is no, I still wear denim despite having done this research. But what this research shows us is how far reaching uh, the impact of our clothing is. And so we need to be aware of how much clothing we have. And if we really need that new pair of jeans, and if we do, can we buy it secondhand? So part of this research, our findings, new jeans shed more fibers than used jeans. So by buying secondhand or used jeans, you can help reduce the amount of microfibers released in your load of laundry. And also that Buying used or secondhand is always great um, because textile waste is a huge problem globally. Additionally, we can be aware of how much we're washing our jeans. So manufacturers recommend that you wash your jeans once a month because laundering is such a harsh process for jeans. It wears them out. And in wearing them out, what that is, is really seeing the fibers from your jeans. (laughs) And so we can wash our jeans less. And then finally, there are actually technologies available to help stop microfiber loss during laundering, things like washing machine, dryer filters. There's bags that you can wash your clothes in to help trap fibers. There's this thing called the Cora ball, which is this fun little ball that you toss into the wash and it traps fibers. Yeah, so there are multiple different actions that we can take and just doing our laundry or buying clothes, that can really help reduce the amount of microfibers being released in the wash. You sort of touched on this, but it didn't occur to me until just now. There's actually a lot of fibers that are created in the process of even creating these garments, right? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, there's actually a lot of fibers that are created during production. It's interesting if you can watch videos of how they distress jeans, so how they make these like ripped jeans that you can buy in the store. And that gives you a good idea of like the fibers associated with production of these textiles. It's crazy. And then also there are studies showing that discharge or runoff from textile industrial areas release fibers to the aquatic environment as well. And it's not just a concern for the environment, but for worker safety as well. These fibers are getting up into the air. You're breathing them in. We don't know what the impacts of that are human health, but perhaps it's not good. So it reduces air quality for sure. You know, once you start thinking in this way, thinking about genes, for instance, in this way, I reckon it's 
getting increasingly hard to ignore all the other things that we that we wrap ourselves in, I guess, both literally and figuratively, that we haven't asked questions about. Like, if my blue jeans, which I, I happen to be wearing right now, are sort of environmentally problematic, now I'm thinking, oh, what else? Like, the pans I cook on and, and the razor blades I shave with and maybe the candles I burn when I'm having dinner with my wife. How do you sort of wrap your mind around a world in which we can't be completely ecologically innocent with every action that we take? Yeah, I think this is kind of a dilemma for any environmental scientist and especially any environmental chemist. A lot of the products that we use, whether they're plastic or non-plastic, they're coated in chemicals, which, you know, we want for durability and stain resistance and this kind of thing. But that comes at, or could come at an ecological cost. So it's kind of hard to say, but I think being an educated consumer and also we need to be asking the industries that produce these products to be transparent about the chemicals they put in them and what they're using um, and holding the companies accountable as well is important. That's Sam Athey. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Toronto, where she's studying the sources and release pathways of microfibers, microplastics, and associated chemical contaminants in the environment. And she was co-author in a recent report on blue gene fibers in the environment. Sam Athey, thank you. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Miadora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening, and go have big ideas.